be seated in the presence of the Lord. Amen. God is good and He's worthy to be praised. This is the day that the Lord has made. Jesus be the center of it all. Hallelujah. What a wonderful thought when we consider that Jesus will be the center of it all. Of everything in our lives. Jesus be the center. I, I, I love that song. I, it is, um, it's a song that just moves my heart. Because I want Jesus to be the center of everything that I do. Everything that I say. Every word that we utter. Let Jesus be the center. Amen. 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 Join me in a moment of, of prayer. As we ask the Lord to bless our time here on today. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and to share from your word. We give you praise right now that you have given us the gospel. And you've given it to us in such a loving way. You sent your son Jesus to come and to die on the cross. That we might be saved, those who would believe. And Father, today we come before your presence asking that The words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart is acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, you are our strength and our redeemer. Grant us now your spirit to speak to us and through us that we may hear what you have to say to your church. This we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 I want to prayerfully invite your attention today to the book of Nehemiah. We're continuing in our series in Nehemiah chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 4 through 11, uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 11, and even though last week we touched on verse 4, I think it's important that we reiterate that verse on this week. The word of the Lord comes to us saying, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive. To the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight 
to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. And today I want to talk from this thought, the Nehemiah perspective, prayer that promotes change, prayer that promotes change. In further considering Nehemiah and his perspective on life, in this text we find him reacting to news regarding the distress of his ancestral homeland. He had asked for and received a report about the Jews who escaped exile and those still living in captivity. Nehemiah's perspective was God-centered, meaning that which, is, that which is important to him or important to God is important to him. Nehemiah had the same values that God had. People, my brothers and sisters, as we said last week, are important to God. Therefore, in the view of Nehemiah, people are important. Which is why he inquires as to their circumstance. But Nehemiah doesn't just ask about the circumstances of the people. Certainly his heart was leaning towards people and, and wanting to know what was going on with them. But he also inquires about Jerusalem. The capital city of his ancestral homeland of Judea. He wants to know about the city, the place where the temple, the most high God once stood, envisioned by the great King David and constructed during the reign of his son, the wise King Solomon. The plight of the people was of primary importance to Nehemiah, but it was not all that was on his mind. He knew the importance of Jerusalem as a city and as a symbol of God's presence and promise to Nehemiah and his ancestors. Jerusalem mattered to Nehemiah. God cares about all places. But it seems, my brothers and sisters, that cities hold a special place in his heart. It is amazing that in a largely agrarian culture, the Bible goes to some length to emphasize cities. And here we are, here we are, seeing that God and that Nehemiah had a concern for this city of Jerusalem. It is a concern for this city of his ancestors, which piques the interest of Nehemiah. Perhaps he believed that the city of Jerusalem was irrevocably tied to the heritage and the history of his people. Maybe Nehemiah believed that if Jerusalem was to perish, so does the memory and the antiquity of his people. If Jerusalem falls by the wayside, if Jerusalem is destroyed, then perhaps Nehemiah felt that the entire memory of the Jewish nation would be destroyed. And nobody wants their, their history to be destroyed. 
We have family reunions so we can know our history. Isn't that right? We have, we have times where we gather with our elders so they can tell us what cousin them was doing before we were born. We want our history. And my brothers and sisters, in our day today, over 80% of Americans live in cities. Many of them in major metropolitan areas. And, and I ask you, can we really survive as a nation if we refuse to take the gospel to the cities? Can we survive as a people if we allow our cities to continue the descent into lawlessness and chaos? Is God going to get the glory from a church that, that ignores the city? We have to take this gospel into the city. It's, it's, it's nice to, 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 to see the gospel in, 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 in the suburbs. I, I love the suburbs. I, I love people that live in the suburbs. But the truth of the matter is, the one place where we really need to make sure that the gospel is preached is in our cities. You pick up the newspaper. You see every day what's going on in the city of Chicago. Little girl is at a sleepover with some of her friends making something called s'mores. Now, when I was growing up, we didn't, we didn't have s'mores at sleepover. We had Jiffy Pop popcorn. <laughs> I got some Jiffy Pop fans in here. We just, it's like, it's like we stand over the stove and just, come on, something's going to happen here in a minute. <laughs> But here she was, making a treat for her and her friends to enjoy. And gunfire breaks out and a bullet comes in the home and ends her life. Have we become so desensitized to violence that we simply shrug our shoulders and say, Oh well, what a shame. What a pity. People being gunned down in our streets every day. And it's happening right in our cities. And I submit to you that we cannot survive as a nation without the gospel in our cities. Without the churches, the places where churches are of the highest concentration. You've heard me say this before, right here in Gary, Indiana, we have over 300 churches. We have more churches almost on every corner. And yet, our crime rate keeps going up and up and up. Well, is there something wrong with the gospel? Absolutely not. It's not anything wrong with the gospel. Tony Evans says it like this. The problem isn't sinners. The problem is saints who are acting like sinners and they're sinning more than the sinners who are sinning. Say that again fast, right? <laughs> but it's here where we find Nehemiah concerned for his people and their homeland, deeply inquisitive as to their condition and wondering about their city. He hears of their trouble and because he understands that all things belong to God, he turns to the Lord of heaven for direction and for comfort. 
Nehemiah does not spend his time ranting about the trouble of his people. He does not let himself slide into the dark abyss of anger at the Persian Empire. He does not sink into depression and despair. He simply decides to fast and pray. What is your response to trouble in your life? What do you do when those clouds hang low? What do you do when, when, when unexpected things happen? Are you a complainer? Are you one who, who, who sinks down into moaning and groaning? Are you one who delves into depression and despair? Do you go in the room, turn the light off, and just don't want to be bothered with anybody? Are you a, a person of shutdown and separation? Now, that's mine right there. I, I, I wish I could tell you that every time I've had trouble in my life, that I was like, oh, glorious, I'm going to pray, and I wanted, everything's going to be okay. And, but that, that's, that's what I wrestle with. I wrestle with this, with shutdown and separation and wanting to just be away from everything. Let me just tell you a little bit about my, 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 my latest shutdown experience. Because I believe that if, you know, if you know that, that the preacher has some problems, you understand that, that everybody has them. Come on, give God some praise for that. That's right. Here, here, a year or so ago, I found myself, our church, Berean, had, had closed down. We had seemingly lost everything. I'd been pastoring, continuously preaching almost every Sunday for 25 straight years. Amen. Thank God. 25 straight years. And here I was on a Sunday with nowhere to go to preach. And God was challenging my spirit. Oh, the only time you can worship me is if you're preaching? I'm wrestling with the Lord. I'm wrestling with the Lord. Lord, I know that when, when I was 16, you called me into this thing called ministry. I know that this is what you said. Did I miss something? Because here I am with, with nothing. I'm in this moment of despair. My wife couldn't talk to me. My family couldn't say anything. And I was in this moment of despair. And I was laboring. God, what am I going to do? And the Spirit of the Lord just let me know that I got this. And the phone rang. Hallelujah. And I was ready to go anywhere but Gary. God, I've been here 25 years. <laughs> Anywhere but Gary. And the phone rang, and, and it was Pastor Brad. He said, hey, we want to talk to you about leading a church in Gary for Bethel. I'm like, Lord, see there? <laughs> That's how me and God talk. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm like, really, God, really? <laughs> but I want to help you understand that even in those moments of despair, it's important that we know how to handle those moments. It was a learning experience for me to realize that God still wanted to use me in spite of everything. And I'm going to tell you today that no matter what you are going through, no matter what you are dealing with in life, God still has work for you to do. Look at somebody and tell them God still has work for you. 
Go ahead, tell them God still has work for you. God still has work for you to do. Now, here we find Nehemiah in the midst of what, what, it could, what could have gone in a very different direction. What could have been a very different thing. Nehemiah decides to fast and pray. Nehemiah recognized that anything he wanted to do or ultimately did without guidance from God would be a futile activity. He could not do anything without hearing from the Lord. To change the circumstance of his people, Nehemiah knew prayer was the first step towards that change. My brothers and sisters, if we are to be restorative servant leaders in our world. And I use that term, restorative servant leaders, because if you've got the gospel and you go into a community that whether it be your home, your family or whatever, where the gospel is needed, you're there for restoration. If we're to be restorative servant leaders in our world and in the city, we must be a people of prayer. Ideas come and go. But prayer must be a constant for the people of God. Amen. So Nehemiah prayed. But he did not pray. Just any prayer. This was not. A now lay me down to sleep moment. You know remember that prayer. Now lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake. I pray the Lord my soul to take. This wasn't one of those moments. This wasn't one of those you know, as your head is about to hit the pillow. <laughs> oh, Lord, I thank you for this day. I'm glad. I'm, 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 amen. <laughs> Sometimes we only get that far. We're like, in Jesus' name. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. I don't know. <laughs> but, but this wasn't one of those quick not to God kind of prayers. And my brothers and sisters, there are some circumstances that require by their very nature that we labor in prayer. There are some things that by their very nature of how they happen, what they, what they are, their essence, require that the people of God set aside everything else, blank out the, uh, everything, pull the curtains back, close up, turn off the TV, shut off the lights, and pray. What would happen if we were doing that kind of prayer? So let me look at this thing. Let's examine this prayer of Nehemiah and discover... Why this kind of prayer promotes change. There are three elements to Nehemiah's prayer. First of all, his prayer is penitent. Then his prayer is providential. And then his prayer is preemptive. Now let's look at this first element of his prayer. Nehemiah's prayer is penitent. Verse 5 through 7 says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We, look at all this inclusive language. We, 
we <laughs> have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules you commanded your servant Moses. Now, let's review the elements of a penitent prayer. The word penitent means feeling or expressing sorrow for sin or wrongdoing and disposed to atonement and amendment to be repentant or contrite. That's what the word penitent means. Now, here's the first thing about penitent prayer. Penitent prayer acknowledges the supremacy of God. Penitent prayer acknowledges the supremacy of God. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Notice how he starts that prayer. Oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. If you look in the Hebrew, that word awesome has, has attached to it a God that evokes fear. But not fear as in terror, but fear as in reverence. God, by your very presence, we are to reverence you because of who you are. A great and an awesome God. When I was younger in church, we were taught about the reverence of God. There were some things that you just didn't say or do in the, in the sanctuary. If I could, Come on, I ought to have a couple witnesses right there, right? There's certain things you didn't do. One thing, the middle aisle of the church, and we don't have one here, but, but the middle aisle of the church was for caskets and the choir and the preacher. That's it. <laughs> if you went down the middle aisle, it was either rolling you down... <laughs> Or you were the preacher or you're marching in with the choir. So, so there were some things that we were just taught about God's awesomeness and his reverence. Or that we should have reverence for him. Now what happens when the church loses reverence for God? So Nehemiah maintained that there was a reverence that he had for God. A great and awesome God. Sometimes in prayer, we're so busy to get to what we want. Watch this now. We jump right in or jump right past who God is. We're so busy praying prayers that are gimme, gimme, won't you let me have. Please, Lord, I need this. I need that. And we forget who God really is. When Nehemiah says that, that uh, if you're going to pray this penitent, penitent prayer, you have to acknowledge the supremacy of God. Now, penitent prayer also acknowledges the promises of God. Look at what he says. He says, this God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. God is a covenant-keeping God. Never do we ever have to doubt that God will uphold his word. But let us not neglect the caveat here. Because, you know, we, oh, God's a, God will honor his word. God keeps his promises and all that. He does. But don't forget what Nehemiah says here. He says, with those who love him. Watch this now. And keep his commandments. 
There's a, there's a, there's a, a, a catchphrase there. There, you know, uh, God, God loves all of us, but, but, but in terms of how we honor Him, we must love Him and keep His commandments. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Don't think that you can get all this from God and live any way you want to. Hmm? We're called to keep his commandments. So penitent prayer is, it acknowledges the, 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 the awesome promise-keeping ability of God. Now, penitent prayer also confesses sin. Penitent prayer confesses sin. Sin for the nation, sin for family, and sin for self. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. Watch this now. For the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. Nehemiah is interceding on behalf of the entire nation. Again, sometimes we get so greedy in prayer, we forget to pray for the, for the nation. We forget to pray for people. We forget to pray for humanity. He says, confessing sins of people, Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Penitent prayer is about confessing. Here's, a, here's something that you can remember very easy. Confess your mess. Right? Confess your mess. And we all create messes. But, but be willing to confess. It's tough, a person, when you're the kind of person that's so stiff-necked, you don't want to confess. Sometimes we'll be wrong as two left shoes. Uh-uh, I'm not confessing. Nope. 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 <laughs> let me let me let me help the the marriages in here because <laughs> this is where it shows up a lot, doesn't it? There's some women in here like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell them, Pastor. <laughs> but confess your mess. It's an easier path back to the heart of the people you love. When you just say you were wrong. We get this thing where we want to defend ourselves. We stake a claim. <laughs> Draw a line. <laughs> I'm not budging. And you know you're wrong. Here's a, here's a good thing that happens a lot. We, <laughs> we'll be wrong. And then we start in on somebody else's wrong. You know, as soon as we get confronted with our mess, oh, oh, but you did this. Confess your mess. Get it over with. By our inaction and failure to share the gospel, we Christians must bear some responsibility for the sin that's around us. And therefore, we have to intercede on behalf of our nation and families like Nehemiah did. We must be unafraid to take on the burden of our brothers and our sisters. The scripture tells us in Galatians to bear one another's burdens. Who are you praying for? Who are you penitently praying for? Who are you praying forgiveness for? 
And so a penitent prayer is what Nehemiah prays here. Now, the second thing that that big element we find in this prayer is that Nehemiah's prayer is providential. It's providential. Look at verse 8. He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're outcasts, are in the uttermost parts of heaven. Now, that's a long way away. From there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Verse 10 says, They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Now, the word providential, it means of, pertaining to, or resulting from divine providence. Okay? Of, pertaining to, or resulting from divine providence. Now, let us examine the elements of providential prayer. Now, providential prayer, first and foremost, recalls God's promise. Okay? Now, first, it was acknowledging the promises of God. Now, this providential prayer, Nehemiah gets deeper into this, and he's recalling God's promise. Look at what he says. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, I'll bring everybody back. Nehemiah calls upon God to remember what he told Moses. Now think about that. Many, many years before, But Nehemiah says, God, I need to recall that promise. The covenant God made with his people. Nehemiah wanted to get that covenant back before the presence of God in this prayer. We need some believers in here today that will pray for God to remember this city. Well, come on. We are so, as I said, caught up in our own stuff that we forget that we need to be praying, God, remember Gary, Indiana. Now, I don't want you going around talking about Bethel's down here and we're going to take the city. That's not, I, I better not hear one person say that. Man, we're going to take the city. No! This city belongs to Jesus. This is as much God's city as Cherville, St. John, Dyer, any other place. This is God's city. He has invited us to come alongside him. He's invited us to walk with people who are already blessing his name, who never get their name in the paper. But they're already praying. They're already on their knees. They're already interceding. So this prayer recalls the promise to remember the city. Remember all those. God's promise to save all those who would believe. Remember the promise to protect and preserve all those who share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is by his providential hand that we stand today. The hymn writer put that in perspective when he, when he wrote these words. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. Pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with 
thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Feed me till I want no more. God made a promise. And after earlier, earlier acknowledging the promise of God, Nehemiah recalls this promise to God. If we are to usher in change, my brothers and sisters, we must not be afraid to recall the promise of God to God. God, remember what you said. Remember you said that if we would preach the gospel to every nation, remember that you said, Jesus, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Remember what you said. Providential prayer also recalls God's patience. Listen to what he says. They, they are your servants and your people. Look at that. They are your servants and your people. This one little phrase. This one little phrase. We could state it like this. God, even though these sinful folks deserve captivity, they are still your people. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> even though, even though they should be right where they are by justice, they are still your people. Even though they defamed your name, they wouldn't pray, their necks were stiff, they rebelled. Even though all of that, Lord, they're still your people. Look at this. <laughs> they are your people in your image. Even though they don't all look alike, they're still your people. They're still created in your image. Even though they, 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 they have neglected to love one another, they're still your people in your image. Even though they, they were been lazy and neglectful about their spirit. When I get to yours, just say something. Even though they've been lazy and neglectful about their spiritual life, they're still your people. Even though they build churches and temples that are supposed to be honoring to your name. And they come in there and they do everything but worship you. Even though they show up on Sunday and they act like they're doing you a favor. They're still your people. They're still your people, God. They're in your image. And you swore covenant to them by the greatest thing that you could swear covenant to them by, by yourself. You couldn't find anything else to swear by, so you swore covenant by yourself. There was nothing greater than you. And so, in essence, Nehemiah pleaded for God not to lose patience with his people. This is another direct intercessory element of this prayer. He said, I pray, God, do not lose patience with your church. That's where I am today. The church as a brand has suffered. The church as a brand, people have dismissed. The church as a brand, people walk right past believers and Christians. When you try to talk to them about the Lord, they don't want to hear it because they don't have anything to do with the church. I pray that God, you won't lose patience with your church. Do you know we don't even deserve to utter the gospel? But we've been chosen to do so. By rights, God, would, would, would you really, we really do not deserve in any way, shape, or form to even speak the name of Jesus. 
But God, through grace, has chosen us for this work. We don't deserve to utter the gospel, but we need to pray God give us the strength to preach it right here in this city. Now, the other thing about providential prayer, providential prayer recalls God's protection. He says, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Nehemiah recognizes and recalls that redemption is now and has always been in the hand of God. You're not redeemed by your relationship to the church. The building. You're not redeemed by the fact that you made it three out of four Sundays this month. <laughs> it is God who redeems. And here in Nehemiah's words, we see an element of the gospel. It is God who redeems. Lord, it's your hand. That is a redemptive force in my life. It's your hand. I didn't have sense enough to get saved. I know that comes as a shock to many of us. <laughs> but I, I wasn't smart enough to respond to the gospel. I can't tell you how many messages I sat through. And at the end of the message, they would say, all sinners come to God. And I'd be sitting there like, they ain't talking to me. And one day, the Holy Spirit taps me on the shoulder. When they say all sinners come to God, he said, they talking about you. It's you. You. So how did I even know I was a sinner? It was because of the great grace and love of God Almighty that brought me into this relationship and told me that I'm a sinner needing to be saved. So, so here... Here's this thing. Watch this now. Watch this now. Redemption, redemption draws us into God's protection. That's why this providential prayer is, is, is about protection as well. Redemption draws us into God's protection. When we are redeemed, we are in his hand. And nothing. Oh, you ain't hearing me today. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Paul says in Romans 8.35, you don't mind if I just say that, do you? Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, you ought to just shout when they get to yours. Persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him that loved us. Come on, trouble. I'm a conqueror. Come on, difficulty. I'm a conqueror. Come on, money problems. I'm a conqueror in all these things. I'm more than a conqueror. Paul says, for I'm sure that neither death, if I die, I'm not going to be separated. Nor life, if I live, I'm not going to be separated. The angels in heaven can't come down and separate me. No rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As believers, watch this now. As believers, 
we have the connection for the protection. I wish I had somebody. We have the connection for the protection. If you've got the connection, you get the protection. Are you hearing me? I've got the connection. So I got the protection. So everywhere my feet go, hallelujah. Where can I go to flee your presence? I can fly to the uttermost parts of the earth and take my wings and fly like a dove. But I find that you are still there. If I go down and make my bed in Hades, you are there. Where can I go? I got the connection for the protection. So, and so as believers, we have that. Finally, the last thing about this prayer, the last big thing, is that Nehemiah's prayer is preemptive. Look at, look at verse 11. Verse 11. Verse 11, he says. He says this. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And to give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was a cupbearer to the king. Now, to preempt means to forestall or prevent something anticipated by acting first. To preclude, to head off possible trouble. He knew. Nehemiah knew he was going before the king that held his people in captivity with a request to help them. Now th- think about the, the sheer audacity and the nerve of that. You are going to the king that holds your people in captivity and you want to go do something to help them. Th- no, you ain't getting it. Think about it again. You're going before the guy who has conquered them and has made slaves out of them. And you want to go in there and tell him that you want to go do something that's going to restore them. That, take, that takes nerve. That, that's audacious. Look at somebody just say, that's audacious. That's just audacious. A lot of nerve there, a lot of nerve. And so Nehemiah knew that this might be dangerous even though he likely had a pretty good relationship with the king. He was the cupbearer. He was the one that brought him his juice in the morning. Hey, king, here it is, a little Tropicana. There you go. Drink up. Don't worry, I tasted it first and I'm still walking. (laughs) But yet, yet Nehemiah still knew that this could be trouble. This could be trouble. So what does, he, what does he do? What does he do? He did not rely on his relationship with King Artaxerxes. But he relied on his relationship with the King of Kings. Oh, you ain't getting that. If you were getting that, you'd be shouting right now. You, 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 you are, listen, you are asking your boss when you ought to be asking God. Watch this now. It, somebody just got delivered right there. You are going, you worry, oh, I got to go talk to my boss. I don't know. I don't know. I, I need to be off because I need to go to church. I got, I got. And you are asking your boss when you ought to be asking God. 
Look at this now. Want to see what happens in the community? We are asking the mayor when we ought to be asking God. Are you hearing me? We are asking the, the governor when we ought to be asking God. We are asking the president when we ought to be asking God. There's a whole paradigm shift for you. You asking your children. Baby, do you feel like going to church today? Man, I wish I would have grown up in some of these households today. My father had a saying. You can't hoot with the owls and fly with the eagles. He didn't care what time you came home on a Saturday night. We going to church on Sunday. I went to church many a Sunday like this. And if you didn't get dressed fast enough, you going in your pajamas. Now, it's only one trip to church in your pajamas that'll change your whole mind. One Sunday, you got to sit up here in your pajamas. It'll all be over right then. You'll be good from now on. But some of us are asking our children, do you, do you, do you want to go, go today? Do you want to go? How is a child running the household? How does that happen? Had a situation where, where a lady told me one time, she said, she said, uh, uh, Pastor, I need your, your help. I, 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 my son, he's, he's 15 and I can't do anything with him. I said, you can. I said, how do you raise some 15 years you can't do anything with? <laughs> That's the first problem. You've lost authority in your home. Anytime a 15-year-old is putting his feet under your table every day to eat, going to your refrigerator, wearing clothes you bought, and they're telling you what to do or what they're not going to do. My father, you couldn't even lock a door in our house. You know what? I wish I would have said, Dad, get out of my room. I wouldn't be here today. <laughs> I'm just going to make it plain. <laughs> I would I would not be here today. <laughs> so how, how, and she, you know, she said, so, so I said, here's what you do. Here's what you do. Take everything that he bought with money he earned. Not money somebody gave him for his birthday, but money he actually worked and earned. Every, and that'll fit in the bag about this big. I said, take that. It was wintertime, December. I said, take that and sit it on the porch and lock the screen door. Y'all, some of us know about the screen door being locked, right? We might have had a key to the inside door. We didn't have a key to the screen door. And he and would and and get up there. And so he came home. She's on the phone with me. Pastor, he's outside. He keep knocking on the door. I said, let him knock. He hadn't gotten cold enough yet. He had to go through stages. First it was mama let me in. Then it was the mad stage. Oh, mama, come on. I can't believe you want him in the house. Then it's the cold, I ain't got nowhere else to go stage. <laughs> mama, I'm sorry, mama. See, that's the penitent stage. <laughs> that's the confessing stage. You, you got to get them to the confessing stage. And sometimes, sometimes they need a little help. Is that right? <laughs> and so, so I said, now let him in. And when he comes in, I said, first thing you do is apologize for being a bad parent. 
That's the first thing you do. Because you, you can't be excusing this. You raise them 15 years, you let them get like this. It's a Frankenstein effect. You raise the monster that turned on you later. <laughs> so, and so, he, so, so, so what I'm saying is, is that we are, we are letting these questions go to people instead of to God. We shouldn't be asking people first. You ought to be on your knees saying, Lord, God of heaven, a great and awesome God, I'm coming before you right now. I'm confessing my mess. And so Nehemiah knew that praying before seeing the king about the matter could bring him favor. But now watch this. Preemptive prayer can bring favor. But he knew that favor cannot come without repentance. Now, I'm getting ready to mess some people up in here today. Everybody running around here claiming favor, they don't have favor. You know, one of our, one of our sayings down here is, favor ain't fair. I got favor. God has given me favor. Oh, but let me help you understand something about favor. You don't get favor without repentance. Come on here. Nehemiah didn't start off this prayer talking about, I need you to give me favor before the king, Lord. He started his prayer talking about, I'm sorry. We have sinned before you. And when that confession happened, he set the groundwork for favor to happen. So don't go around here talking about how much favor you have you haven't confessed. What he was saying is that he needed, he needed God to be with him. Everybody doesn't have favor that claims favor. Sometimes they're just walking in what's called delayed judgment. <laughs> you think you're walking in favor. It's just that the judgment ain't happened yet. <laughs> that judgment for what's going on in your life, that sinful activity, it hasn't happened yet. You go out and buy a new car. Look at me. I got favor. Oh, but the judgment's coming. You go out and get a new car, nice and shiny new car, but you can't pay your tithes. Oh, did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. I didn't. <laughs> inner thoughts got to stay in, Ken Berry. That's what they got. Inner thoughts got to stay in. And so so we, got, we got Nehemiah praying this prayer that is preemptive. He sees that something could be coming. Look at the elements of this preemptive prayer, and I'll be through right here. Watch. Preemptive prayer invokes God's presence. He says, oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Servant, Nehemiah cried out that the Lord would hear him. He needed God to be present with him right in the midst of that prayer. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive and, 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 and to this prayer of your servant. In essence, he was saying, Lord, be with me in this prayer. Preemptive prayer also initiates God's attention. Look at this. He says, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to him today. Nehemiah asked God to give attention to all of his people. Now, this doesn't imply somehow that God was aloof or inattentive. It's simply a man beseeching his creator in fervent prayer for success and favor. 
He's simply going to God saying, I need you to be in the midst of this prayer. I need your presence. I need you to be with me. I need your attention. I know that I'm going to need you to move on the heart of that king. Now, we can have all the marches we want about violence. We can have all the talks we want about violence, all the meetings we want about violence. But until we start praying for God to move on the hearts of the people who are committing violence in this community, we will see no change. Lastly, preemptive prayer invites God's mercy. He says, in granting mercy in the sight of this man. He says, now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah knew that without the mercy of God, There would be no favor before the king. In essence, his prayer preemptively asks for mercy from the true giver of mercy. When we go before the Lord praying for change, brothers and sisters, we need to pray his mercy upon us and our efforts. It is in his mercy we need to be finding ourselves and not that of anyone else. God's mercy is available to you right now. There were times when I would be in my grandmother's house and she would walk around the house and the only thing I would hear her say is, Lord, have mercy. And I'd be like, Grandma, why are you always saying, Lord, have mercy? Why are you asking God to have mercy? Don't you want some money? Because see, at seven years old, if it was me, it'd be like, Lord, have mercy. Have some money. (laughs) Lord, I need some popsicles or something. Ice cream man coming. Lord, I need this. But she was like, Lord, have mercy. Now, it's when I got older. I understood this element of mercy in a different way. And I understand now why she was praying for God to have mercy. Because God is a God of mercy. God's mercy endureth to all generations. God's mercy is available even for you right now. And even as we look at what it takes to pray so that change is promoted in our lives and in our communities, don't forget to say, Lord, we need your mercy. We need your mercy. We need a birthing of your mercy all over this room, a birthing of your mercy all over this community, a birthing of your mercy all over our families. We need your mercy. Mercy. Pray with me today as our prayer counselors come forward. Prayer that promotes 